Amen. I am thankful for that grace that God has poured out on us through Christ. If you are a believer this morning and you've tasted that grace, then you have something to sing about. And I'm also thankful that in God's grace, he's gathered us together, that he has brought us here, that we might continue to experience his grace as we fellowship together, as we worship, and as we open God's word together. So I want to invite you to open uh, to Luke chapter 12 with an expectation, with a hunger, with an eagerness that God would minister his grace to us now in this hour. Luke chapter 12 in our text this morning will be verses 54 through 59. Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 54. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Father, as we wrestle with these very direct and perhaps difficult words of Christ this morning, We ask that you would continue your work of grace in us, that you would enable us to hear and understand, to believe and to obey everything that your word sets forth. Lord, we recognize the truthfulness, the authority, and the necessity of your word. And we recognize that we are in need of the help of your spirit to behold the truth. We pray that you would illuminate the scriptures to us this morning. And I ask God that whatever obstacles there may be to hearing and receiving the word of Christ this morning, that you would remove those obstacles and minister your grace to us and needy people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Judging has a negative connotation for most people, doesn't it? Both inside the church and outside the church, to judge is seen as something that you shouldn't do. And to be sure, there is a kind of judgment that is sinful, right? Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. So there's a kind of judging, a kind of judgment that Christians are to refuse. James, the half-brother of Jesus, rebukes those in the early church who showed partiality, who showed preferential treatment to certain people in the church. He calls them judges with evil thoughts or evil motives. So any sort of self-righteous condemnation of others, that sort of judging is sin. It's an expression of pride. But there is a kind of judgment, a proper discernment, a biblical way of evaluating things that is right. In fact, it is necessary. In the Gospel of John, in chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. We read through the New Testament, we learn that we're instructed to judge teaching, to 
See if it is biblical. Paul commends the believers at Berea because they searched the scriptures to see if the things that he was telling them were, were true and biblical. We're told that we will know false teachers by their fruit. There's an evaluation. There's a judgment that is to be made. We're told that we are responsible to judge moral issues in the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us we're not judging people in the world but we are to judge those within the household of God. There is a purification that takes place when the church exercises discipline when necessary. But the most important judgment that you will ever make, the most important thing that a man or a woman, a boy or a girl might possibly evaluate and come to a conclusion about is Jesus. It is essential to judge Jesus rightly. And that's what this text is about. What is your judgment of Jesus? Who do you say that he is? What do you think of his claims? What do you think about his message? What do you think about his warnings, his invitations? In this text, Jesus urges us to come to a conclusion about him and to respond rightly. And he gives us two reasons why. And the first reason is this, in verse 54 through 56, the evidence to make the right judgment is sufficient. The evidence is sufficient. It is enough. Jesus says there is enough information, enough evidence out there to come to the right conclusion as to who he is and what his mission is and how we ought to respond. The evidence to make the right judgment is sufficient. Jesus is speaking here to the crowd, verse 54. Prior to this, he's been speaking more personally to his disciples as he talks to them about uh, this, this parable about servants and a master that's going to return, and as he explains the true nature of his mission, which, which we saw last week. But then he raises his eyes to see the mass of people that at the beginning of chapter 12, we see they're actually trampling on each other, trying to get closer to Jesus, wanting to hear what he has to say, wanting to see what it is that he might do next. And this crowd is a mixed crowd. There's some that are truly seeking the kingdom of God, But there's some that to this point have refused to believe. The religious leaders were actually accusing Jesus of doing his miracles by the ungodly power of Satan. We see that back in chapter 11 in verse 15. Some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. That was their judgment of Jesus. They were not there to learn They were not there to receive anything from Christ. In fact, they were trying to trap him, to find some fault in him. We see that at the end of chapter 11. As he went from there, the scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Some have already rejected Christ. They are hostile towards him. There's others who were somehow, amazingly, able to dismiss all of his miracles and claimed that they needed to see more before they could believe in Christ. They were seeking a sign from heaven. Again, if you look back in chapter 11, in verse 16, it says that others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. They were skeptical. They were withholding judgment at this point. And then there were likely others that were just in the middle. They were undecided. They weren't hostile towards Jesus, but they were also not yet ready to commit. But as Jesus makes clear, his authoritative claims, the definitive nature of his ministry, it it leaves no room for sitting on the fence. There is no middle ground. 
You either believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the son of God, that he is the son of man, that he was born of a virgin, that he died on the cross and he rose from the grave, or you don't. Jesus speaks powerfully and directly to such undecided people, and he challenges their unbelief. And he does so by pointing out their knowledge of the weather. Verse 54, he says to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming, and so it happens. Now, in in those days, obviously, there was no weather.com. You couldn't just flip on the TV and watch a local you know, weather guy pull up the Doppler radar and tell you what the next three days look like. You couldn't even say, hey, Siri, what's the weather tomorrow? I was going to wait and see if somebody's phone kicked on. <laughs> you guys did a good job. Um, they didn't even have the farmer's almanac. They had none of those technologies, none of those kinds of things that they could rely on. But as a people who depended on the weather for farming their livelihood. They depended on the weather for things like fishing there on the Sea of Galilee. They had to pay attention to the weather if they were going to travel because they traveled by foot or perhaps on the back of a donkey. These people in this region, they had figured out how to pay attention to the signs of changing weather. And so Jesus points them to to two of these signs. He talks in verse 54 about a cloud rising in the west. Weather systems generally move from west to east, and Israel, the land of Israel, lies directly east of the Mediterranean Sea. So a cloud rising in the west signaled that there was water vapor, that there was evaporation taking place out over the sea, and as those clouds came inland and came their way, there was a good chance that it was going to produce rainfall. We see an example of this in 1 Kings chapter 18. If you remember that story of the prophet Elijah when he challenges Uh, The prophets of Baal, there's been three years of drought, God's judgment on an idolatrous nation. And following this confrontation at Mount Carmel, Elijah prays for rain. In 1 Kings chapter 18, it says, Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look towards the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. And he said, go again, seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. This is centuries before Jesus is speaking, and people in that region, they've been able to tell what the weather is going to be for a long time. In fact, there's this famous story about after a drought, a little cloud that looks like the shape of a man's hand, a large thunderhead rising up out over the sea. And then you have this race back to Jezreel, trying to beat the storm, trying to get to shelter. Everyone knew what clouds in the west meant. It meant you better get ready because the rain is about to fall, and you don't want to get caught out in the downpour. Jesus brings up a second weather phenomenon in verse 55. He talks about a south wind blowing. When you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. So the land of Israel has a large arid desert directly to the south. It's called the Negev in Scripture. And when the wind blows up from the south, it moves that hot air into the land of Israel. And it's reported that the temperature can rise up to 30 degrees in a single hour. Think about that. 
To go from 60 degrees to 90? Go from 75 to 105? Go from 80? I mean, do the math. It's pretty significant. That can be deadly to crops. That can be dangerous for your livestock if they've not been watered sufficiently. That can be dangerous for people who are traveling. When the wind picks up from that direction, coming up from the south, everyone knew to get ready for a heat wave. So Jesus says, look, you people, you know how to read the weather, but you can't recognize that God is moving in your midst. You can't tell that the kingdom is near. These people were more attuned to meteorology than they were to the Messiah that was right in their midst. And they should have known better. So Jesus drives home a rebuke. He calls them in verse 56, hypocrites. He says, you hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky. But why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Jesus has already warned his disciples about the danger of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Chapter 12, verse 1. That hypocrisy is a proud unbelief that refuses to accept that God is speaking and acting through Jesus. Now Jesus rebukes this undecided crowd because they, like the Pharisees, are being hypocritical. How are they hypocritical? Well, they claim to have religious insight. They claim to be spiritually in tune. They claim to be interested in the things of God and waiting and looking for the promise of the fulfillment of God's promises. They think of themselves as highly discerning. But Jesus says they're actually filled with spiritual ignorance. They pretend like they don't have enough evidence to accept that Jesus is the Messiah to receive his teaching. But that is absolutely untrue. Consider the ample evidence, the signs of the present time that they had been given. They had the witness of the Old Testament scriptures telling them what to look for, telling them what to prepare for. Countless prophecies that were being fulfilled right under their nose. The birth of a son to a virgin in Bethlehem. The countless things that Jesus was saying and doing. The healing of the blind and and the lame. Fulfilling the messianic prophecies. Not only did they have the Old Testament witness, they had the remarkable events surrounding John the Baptist's birth. This elderly couple, this old priest... Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, that she was with child after her husband saw this amazing vision in the temple. For that to happen in the temple, showing that this was God doing something and that it had significance for the whole nation, that Zechariah sees this vision, comes out, and he cannot speak. For nine months, he cannot speak until his son is born and he says his name is John. Then his mouth is opened and he prophesies and worships God. The remarkable birth of John the Baptist a sign that God was doing something. They had the preaching ministry of John the Baptist. John came and he preached and he said that someone is coming who's greater than I am. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And then Jesus walks on the scene and John points and says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John gladly sees his own followers trickle away to start following Jesus. And John says, he must increase. I must decrease. They had evidence They had the incredible miracles of Jesus. The deaf that were hearing, the lame that were walking, the blind that were seeing, the lepers that were made clean. Everyone had heard about this. In fact, even Herod, this this ungodly 
ruler had heard about everything Jesus was doing, and he was hoping to see Jesus because he wanted to see for himself with his own eyes. He wanted to see these things taking place. People came not just from throughout Israel to see Jesus and be healed. They even came from the surrounding nations. And they weren't coming because they heard a rumor. They were coming because there was evidence all around them. See that kid skipping down the street? Two weeks ago, he could not walk. He was crippled in his feet. Do you see that man who's, who's plowing the field over there, following that team of oxen? Three months ago, he was blind. He couldn't see a thing. Do you see that woman who's selling bread in the marketplace, happily chatting with her neighbor? Six months ago, she was oppressed by a demon. No one could have a reasonable conversation with her. She would hide in her basement. Do you see that man on his way to the temple to offer a sacrifice? Two weeks ago, he was leprous. He had to live outside the city. Do you see him? Now he's clean. The people could see the evidence with their own eyes. Not to mention there were even some, a widow's only son, a young daughter, one of Jesus' friends named Lazarus, who had died and come back to life. The evidence was all around them of what Jesus was doing. It was tangible. Not only did they have the incredible miracles of Jesus, they had the authoritative teaching of Jesus. The officials from Jerusalem exclaimed in John 7, 46, no one ever spoke like this man. Matthew 7, 29 says that he taught with authority, not like their scribes. So for them to hold Jesus at arm's length and say, we haven't really seen enough, we can't tell if this is of God or not. Jesus says that is nothing less than hypocrisy. They should have recognized that something was unique about the present time. That's what Jesus is telling them. You do not know how to interpret the present time, that this moment in history is a moment that God has been telling you about and preparing you for, and now God is working. God is acting. He has sent his son into the world to speak through him. The kingdom was present in Jesus, and that calls for a decision. Yet they held him at arm's length. And Jesus calls them hypocrites because this is not a deficiency of information, and it is not a deficiency of intellect. They are well able to tell the signs of the weather. This is a problem of the will. This is a refusal to believe. This is a moral problem, and Jesus calls it hypocrisy. The Apostle Paul confronts this empty and hypocritical, hypocritical strain of Judaism in Romans chapter 2. In Romans 2, 19, he says, If you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind... A light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Jesus is challenging that same strain of religious hypocrisy that claims to have knowledge, claims to know the truth, claims to be helping others and serving God. But they are spiritually corrupt. There's an important principle here that earthly wisdom earthly knowledge and skill 
being able to understand what's going on around you in this world, that is no indicator that someone is able to rightly judge spiritual matters. You know, it's possible to be very shrewd in diagnosing what's going on in the culture. We see this with with so-called conservatives who are not Christians. They may have all these insights, right? And claim to have a lot of knowledge. There's some people who claim to have have a lot of expertise in, in reading the political landscape, identifying what it is that's going on in that complex world. There's some people who are experts in the economy. They can anticipate changes in the market. They can anticipate, anticipate and understand the changes and the fluctuation to the value of the dollar. They understand what international trade does for local and national economics. There's some people who are experts in scientific matters. They understand how the world works. There's some people that are experts in the NFL. They can tell you how the draft is going to fall out in a few months, right? There's people that understand family dynamics and business opportunities. They can be savvy at interpreting and understanding all the things that go on in our world and at the same time be absolutely blind to what matters most, the spiritual issues of Christ. This is what scripture calls feudal thinking. Listen to Ephesians 4, 17. Paul says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles to do. This is those that do not know God, those that do not worship God, those who are separated from the people of God. It says, no longer walk as they do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Paul pairs together this spiritual ignorance with a hard heart. It's not just a lack of information. It is a moral problem. Paul identifies it in his letter to the Romans. That's what Jesus is exposing and rebuking here. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? There were many that day who were listening, who were unmoved. Perhaps there are some here today who are listening, who have listened. You've heard these things before, and yet you remain unmoved by the claims of Christ. Can I ask why? It isn't because there isn't enough evidence. Jesus speaks to you today. He challenges you. Do you know how to interpret, how to judge all these other things, and yet you claim that there's not enough evidence here that you would accept me. Jesus says, no, you do know how, but you don't want to. It is a moral problem. Jesus does not coddle this kind of unbelief. He rebukes it and condemns it. After addressing this need to interpret the present time, Jesus then, secondly, urges them to act while there is time. He gives us a second reason why we must judge him rightly. Not only is the evidence sufficient, but secondly, the time to make the right judgment is limited. The time is limited. Look in verse 57. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. 
They need to make the right judgment about Jesus, who he is, the truthfulness and authority of his message. But they also need to make the right judgment about themselves. Jesus says, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? The word for right here is just or righteous. Christ is just. He is righteous. But also, we are not. We are not righteous. And that's why Christ came into the world. John the Baptist ministry, which preceded Christ's, he called people to judge themselves, to evaluate themselves, to consider their own sin and therefore their need for repentance. Listen to Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 3. It says that John the Baptist went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. That was the essence of John's message, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The way that John prepared the way for Christ was telling people that God's salvation and God's judgment was coming and that they needed to prepare and make the way ready for him by repenting of their sins. They needed to prepare for the coming of the Messiah and for the kingdom that he was bringing by evaluating the sinfulness in their own hearts and repenting of that sin. Jesus preached the need for this repentance as well. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Mark summarizes Christ's preaching ministry with these words that Jesus came saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As sinners, we have a problem. Sin separates us from God and our sin deserves judgment by God. We need cleansing, we need forgiveness, we need restoration. And that only comes to those who have a heart that is broken, a heart that is humble, a heart that is repentant over sin. Until you judge yourself rightly, until you recognize that your sin against God actually puts you in eternal danger, you will never run to Christ, you will never submit to him, you will never trust in him, you will never repent until you judge rightly, until you recognize that judgment is coming and you are in danger and something needs to change. To illustrate the urgency of this right judgment and the necessity of their response of repentance, Jesus gives them an analogy in verse 58 and 59. He talks about this situation of settling a case before it comes to judgment. And I don't think Jesus is switching topics here from talking about their spiritual response to him and now just giving some, some practical advice on how to handle a legal matter. That would be a change of subject. And I think Jesus is still driving home the same point. This is a mini parable. It's an illustration from life that's actually meant to teach a spiritual principle. So what is the life situation Jesus has in mind? Well, he brings up this illustration of someone who has a case with an accuser. He says, as you go with your accuser before the magistrate. So, so he has in mind here, someone has a case against you, and you're going to, to see someone who will judge the matter, who will settle the matter, someone who will, who will offer arbitration for that legal matter. And Jesus says, you guys know that in that sort of situation, it's really smart to try to settle outside of court if you can. <clears throat> 
you have a better chance of negotiating a settlement while you're on the way. Say to your accuser, you know what, rather than make the journey all the way there, rather than go through all the headache, rather than go through all the process, what if we just settle this out of court? That's wise to do. Because Jesus says, you know that if it does end up in court, and if you lose the case, there will be no mercy from the authorities, only the carrying out of the sentence. He points this out. That if you're not able to settle with your accuser on the way, he'll drag you to the judge. The judge will hand you over to the officer. The officer will put you in prison. And Jesus says, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. That is a less desirable outcome than settling outside of court, negotiating some sort of agreement. The imagery that Jesus uses here is one of debtor's prison. In those days, if you couldn't pay your debt, then you would be thrown into prison. You would be held there until the debt was paid in full. Now, this was more of a deterrent to debt than it was a solution for debt, because if you're in prison, it's hard to make money. It's hard to dig your way out of that hole if you're stuck in jail. To make matters worse, debtors were often treated very harshly in prison, again, as a deterrent to defaulting on debt, but also as a motivation to their families to come up with the money somehow, to sell property. In fact, some would even sell themselves into slavery in order to somehow work off the debt and purchase the freedom of a family member who was being punished in prison. It was a harsh and a demanding system to go into debtor's prison and one that some people never got out of. They all knew that that's how the world works. And Jesus uses this, I think, to teach them a spiritual principle. What's the spiritual significance of this illustration? will consider that we are condemned by the law. Romans chapter 2, verse 12 says that all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Paul is saying whether you know and are aware of God's law or whether you're blind to it, either way, there are consequences for violating God's law. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6 tells us that the wages of sin is death. So we all have an accuser in the law of God. It condemns us as being guilty. And we all have a court date that is coming soon. In Hebrews 9 verse 27, the author of Hebrews states that it is appointed for man to die once And after that comes judgment. That is the destiny for every man, every woman, to die and to face judgment. Ecclesiastes 12, 14 tells us that God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The Apostle John describes this judgment that takes place before a great white throne in Revelation 20, verse 11. John says, I saw a great white throne And him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. This is the spiritual reality 
which is a literal reality that Jesus is tapping into here, that all men will one day stand before God. And if you are judged on that day as owing God a debt, if you are found on that day to be guilty of sin, if you are found to have violated God's perfect law, if you are found to have broken any of his commandments, if you have failed to do what he requires, if you have entertained thoughts, spoken words, harbored attitudes, or performed deeds that are tainted in any way by human sinfulness, then you will be justly judged. Jesus says, you have a court date coming. Don't forget what Jesus said earlier in Luke chapter 12. In verse 5, he says, I warn you who to fear. Fear him whom, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus is the cloud that is rising. There is a storm of judgment that is coming. Jesus is the wind that is blowing in from the south. And there is a scorching heat of eternal judgment that is on its way. As we saw last week in verse 49, Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth. Do they see it? Will they respond appropriately? Jesus says, you know how to tell what time it is from looking at the weather, but you have a limited time to settle your spiritual account with your maker. Now is the time. This is a sober warning because if they delay and they do not settle their accounts with God now while there's still time, if they do not repent of their sin, if they do not submit to Christ and claim him as Lord, then eventually they will stand before the judgment and then on that day, it will be too late. This is a sober warning, but listen, it is also a gracious offer. Do not miss this. Amidst all the warning and all the rebuke, do not miss this precious offer of grace that God is willing to settle with us now. He doesn't have to. In the little parable that Jesus tells, there may be some accusers who say, no, I'm not willing to settle with you outside of court. I'm not willing to negotiate a settlement. I want to take this all the way through the process and you are going to pay. There are some out there who are like that, but God is not like that. God is willing he stands ready and eager to settle with you prior to your judgment day. In fact, he's already made a provision for that settlement through his son. Jesus Christ stands ready to save, ready to forgive, ready to mediate between God and man because Jesus is the one who comes to stand in our place and make atonement on our behalf, to pay our debt for us, to bear our punishment, so that we can be reconciled to God. Colossians 1.21 says, You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. It is because of the death of Christ, because of the suffering that he bore in his flesh on the cross, that you can be presented blameless before God, not guilty, not condemned. It's possible for your debt to be paid by Christ. It's possible for you to be reconciled with God. It is possible for you to be restored to God so that on the day of judgment, there will be no case against you. There will be no charge against you 
because it will have already been settled at the cross. But in order to experience this mercy, you must repent. Jesus urges us, settle your account now while there is still time, because if you delay, if you enter into the day of judgment with outstanding debts against God, there will be no mercy after that. Jesus urges the crowd to judge rightly. The evidence to make the right judgment is sufficient. If they can tell the weather, they should be able to tell that he's the Messiah. And the time to make the right judgment is limited. Every moment, every second that ticks by, we're one second closer to that day. We're closer now than we were when this sermon started. Closer now than we were when this service started. And if the Lord tarries, you will be closer when you leave than you ever have been to standing before the Almighty Judge. Have you judged rightly? Have you judged Christ rightly? Or are you on your way to the judgment? This is not a passage about looking for signs of the return of Christ. It's not that sort of interpreting signs. This is a passage about understanding the meaning and the significance of Christ's coming into the world when he came in that day, his first coming. For those of you who may be undecided about Christ this morning, I want to warn you there are two lies that Satan wants you to believe. There's two lies. If if you are not all in, if you've not embraced Christ as Lord, there's two lies that Satan wants you to believe. And the first is this. I need more evidence. I need more information. That's actually a lie. It's not true. Scripture says you will be without excuse if you persist in your unbelief. Romans chapter 1 says that you know deep down inside who God is and what he is like because of the very fact of his creation. Romans chapter 2 tells you that you know deep down inside what it is that God requires because you have a conscience. You feel guilty for your sin. Your conscience condemns you and tells you there's something wrong, there's something off, and you can suppress that truth, you can ignore it, you can mask it, you can numb yourself to that feeling of guilt and condemnation, you can distract yourself, but you know it's true. And you will be without excuse. You don't need more information. A lot of people get hung up on the details of creation. Evolution, literal creation in six days. Some people get hung up on whether the flood was global or regional. Some people get hung up on the roles of women in the home or the church because the Bible teaches male headship in both. And that's offensive or confusing to some. Other people have questions about whether the parting of the Red Sea and the feeding of the 5,000 and all these miracles, how that could literally happen, and it's a stumbling block to them. Some people have different passages they've come across in Scripture that seem to be in tension, and they get distracted by trying to sort through all those other issues. But listen, those are secondary issues. The crux of the matter that you must decide upon today is this. What happened in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago? What was God accomplishing in that moment of history when Jesus walked onto the stage, when the Son of God died on the cross and rose again? The tomb is empty. What are you going to do with that? That's the main issue. All those other issues are important. They really are. And we teach on them and and, and we explain them from Scripture. And they matter, but they cannot be understood properly until you confess that Jesus is Lord. 
That is what you must decide upon. There's a second lie you might be tempted to believe. You might claim, well, I I need more information. But you also might be tempted to believe, well, I have plenty of time. I have plenty of time. If I could just point you to two different verses in this very chapter. In verse 20, in the parable of the rich fool, God says to this rich fool, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? The reality is you don't know how much time you have. The first funeral we held in this church was for a 12-year-old boy. No one expected that. Not only do you not know the day of your death, but we also don't know the day of Christ's return. Look in verse 40. Remember how Jesus said, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect? If you think you have plenty of time, let the words of Scripture free you from that disillusion because you don't know how long you have to live and you don't know when Christ is coming back. The time to settle your account with God is now because once you get to the judgment, it will be too late. Three times in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews quotes from the 95th Psalm, bringing these words to bear. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's my plea to you this morning. If you are undecided about Christ today, if you hear his voice, if you've heard anything that Jesus is saying, if you've picked up on anything that Christ is trying to convey to us, if you've heard any of that, do not harden your heart. Friend, it is a grace to hear the word of Christ this morning. That is God's gift to you, that he has given you time and he's given you this word, that he's calling you to repent and believe. 2 Corinthians 6.1 Paul writes, working together with him, with Christ then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Don't receive the grace of hearing this gospel message in vain. Paul continues, for he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. If you're undecided this morning, Because in a group this size, there's always some. I'm urging you to open your eyes to receive the evidence that God has provided. I'm pleading with you to repent of your sins and to confess that Jesus is Lord and to trust in his death and resurrection as the only way that your account can be settled with God. Don't miss this moment. Settle up your account while there is still time. But I also want to speak to those of you who believe. You might be sitting there this morning saying, J.D., I I believe that Jesus is the Christ, and I believe my account is settled with God. So all of this is sort of irrelevant for me. Well, I, I want to encourage you that it's not irrelevant. And there's something here that is precious, truly precious for us, that should deepen our love for Christ, that should deepen our gratitude to God, that, that should expand our love for the gospel, our joy in the gospel. I want you to consider this morning with a thankful heart that it is possible for sinners like us to be reconciled to God and that we don't have to twist his arm. Think about the fact, who is it who initiated the settlement? Did we go to God and say, God, we recognize that we are sinners and that we're headed for judgment? Is there something you can do to, to solve this problem? That's not why God sent Jesus into the world. It's not because we were pursuing him. 
It's not because we were twisting his arm. It's not because we negotiated something with him where, where we were sort of, you know, offer and counter offer. And if you do this, I'll do that. And we'll meet in the middle. No, the very fact that you and I can be reconciled to God is because God is gracious because he pursued us because he took the initiative to settle our account. Think about the fact that God is the injured party. God is the one with the grievance. And yet he is the one who provides the settlement to his own hurt. 2 Corinthians 5.21 describes exactly how our case is settled. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The settlement for our account was that Jesus took upon himself all of our sin and that he grants to us all of his righteousness. It was the work of the cross. Amazingly, it's the injured party, it's the one who has the grievance, it's the one to whom we owe the debt that actually provides the payment for the debt. We're the ones who have the obligation. We're the ones who are guilty. We're the ones who have done him wrong, and we have nothing to offer. We can't settle that score. We can't settle that account. Christ does it for us. In Isaiah 53, 5, it says that Christ, the Messiah, would be pierced for our transgressions, that he would be crushed for our iniquities, and that upon him would be the chastisement, the punishment that brings us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. What do you call that? What do you call that, that God would take the initiative? What, what do you call that, that God would provide what is required? What do you call that, that God would seek and accomplish reconciliation with sinners? You call that grace. That is grace. And if considering that grace doesn't cause you to give thanks and to tremble with humility and to overflow with joy and gratitude that we serve God like that, then I wonder if you understand that grace. If you're a believer today, give thanks that we serve a God who is not only willing to be reconciled with us, but who took the initiative to provide everything that is required so that we could be reconciled to God. Friends, Jesus is God's Messiah. Jesus is his own son. He came into the world to save sinners, and he is coming again to establish his kingdom and bring judgment. There's a day coming, a day of judgment coming for those who persist in their unbelief and rebellion. But today is a day of salvation. Today is a day of opportunity. May Jesus receive the glory and the faith and the obedience that he deserves. I hope you can see what it is that God has been doing through his son. And I hope that you have responded rightly and judged Jesus correctly. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we recognize how impossible it is for a preacher to overcome the obstacle of unbelief. We recognize how impossible it is for a sinner to somehow manufacture faith and repentance in their own heart. So Lord, we're asking that you would do a work of sovereign grace this morning, that you would overcome whatever obstacles to faith there may be. I pray that you would overcome the pride and the hardness of heart that keeps people from repenting.
I pray that you would overcome the spiritual ignorance that persists in people's hearts and minds, and I pray that you would rescue them, redeem them, save them. May they come to the cross today with humility, with a broken heart, as they judge that Jesus really is who he says he is, that he's the only way to salvation, that he is the authoritative Messiah, the King of kings, the Son of God. I pray that they would judge themselves rightly to confess with a broken and contrite heart that they are guilty, that they fall short of your glory, and that they are absolutely needy and dependent on you to save them. Lord, I pray you would make today a day of salvation for those who need it in our midst. And Lord, for those of us who have been, by your grace, reconciled to you through the work of Christ, I pray that you would give us an even greater joy in the gospel, a deeper and greater joy that would overflow in gratitude and in worship, that would overflow in witness to our friends and neighbors, and that would spur us to love you and to serve you with a glad heart. Lord, we recognize that while you are a severe and a holy judge, you are also a gracious Savior, and you have given us a rich and eternal blessing and salvation. Lord Jesus, we thank you for everything you suffered, everything you did in obedience to your Father to bring about our reconciliation. We worship you and praise your holy name. You alone are worthy of our love and our affection, our loyalty, our submission. You are Lord and our Savior. We worship and praise your name and give you thanks today. Amen.